I like that word of faith there, Sean, the way you're just taking authority, saying that sun is going to shine. We're claiming it today in Jesus' name. We rebuke those clouds and the rain. <laughs> the sun going to come down. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. All right. Rain or shine, we're going out there and baptizing some people. So uh, it just matters. Will they be wet beforehand or just afterward? We'll see. So I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Wilderness Church. Really good to uh, see all of you. If you're visiting and all of a sudden realize that you're underdressed because we're kind of formal, uh, that's too bad. Uh, but um, yeah, next time you'll, 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 you'll be up to speed on, on you know, we're, we're suit and tie kind of a crowd. All right. I actually thought it was going to be warm today. I, of course, I didn't check the weather or anything, so I get up. It was hot yesterday. Why wouldn't it be today? So I dressed for like, hot, and it turns out it's not so hot. But so what? All uh, right. Thanks to uh, Vanessa, who did an outstanding job last week. Wasn't that a great message? She's just the bomb. She's just Jacob and Esau and all that. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get it. Um, sad to see her going away to grad school, but I'm glad she's following the call of God in her life. Uh, and so uh, she'll stay in connection with us, be back here during the summers. And who knows, maybe she'll end up back here permanently. We'll have to see. But uh, she did a great job. So we're continuing this series on twisted scripture, looking at scripture that we believe has gotten twisted along the way, gets misinterpreted, misapplied, and things like that. Now today, today's going to be one of those sermons. We have them every once in a while. Uh, kind of uh, big ones. Um, uh, the two passages we're going to be looking at this morning that we believe have been misinterpreted and misapplied, are um, why I think these, the misapplication, misinterpretation of these two passages has done more to harm the kingdom of God and the reputation of the kingdom of God from the 5th century on than any other scripture we've looked at in this series or could look at. I mean, this is huge. Um, and in addressing this twisted scripture, I'm aware that I'm coming up against one of the biggest idols in our culture and in the church. It has to do with our trust in violence. Um, this was the message, basically, that eight, nine years ago uh, ended up causing a thousand people to leave. This is not a popular message in America. Uh, and I come back to it every couple of years just to make sure the crowd's still getting thinned out. You know, you just want you... <laughs> Offerings are getting too high. We've got to lower this thing here, so we've got to come back to it. <laughs> Church shrinkage specialist. So here's the two passages. The first is, well, first let me pray. Father, I pray, God, that uh, for all who are hearing this for the first time, it, it may be new, it may even be offensive, and I, I just pray, Lord, that you give them an open mind and heart to hear it out and to internalize it, both in the congregation and our parishioners. Uh, create an openness, a space in us to receive your word in all of its beauty and all of its radical edginess. Uh, I pray, God, for every person in this auditorium and listening through podcasts, that you would um, protect us from the enemy who would like to distort and cause miscommunication or misunderstanding or put up defenses. Uh, Lord, I want to take authority over anything in the unclean kingdom that would uh, be assigned to cause us to desire a watered-down version, a vanilla version of the beautiful gospel that you have uh, purchased with your life and death and resurrection. Help us to be a people who have a heart to receive from you all that you have to give, and to go all the way with it, all the way with it. To not be middle-of-the-road status quo people, but to be people who are on the edge. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, get ready for this. Here's, here, here's the, the two passages. The first, I'll just read one verse uh, from Matthew 22. It's when Jesus says, 
Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Yeah. The rest of it there I'll get to a little bit later on. And see, this has been taken to support what's often called a two-kingdoms theology. And the idea behind this theology is just this, that we live in two kingdoms. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we're also citizens of our country. And we have an obligation to both in the two-kingdoms theology. We have an obligation to both. We have divided loyalties. And sometimes they tug on one another, and we just got to live in that tension. We live in two kingdoms. The other passage that's used to support this uh, two-kingdoms view, and the main passage as from Romans 13, and here's the, the most important aspect of Romans 13, where Paul says that everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Nazi Germany? Stalin? Russia? Established by God? Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted. Was Bonhoeffer a heretic for rebelling against Hitler? Think about it. What does that mean? The reason is because rulers, you see, are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, in this interpretation, it's been prevalent ever since the church came into political power, where it was the advantage of the church to be able to convince citizens that everyone has to be subject to them. It's a great form of control. Um, and, and so in this interpretation, you see God, God is over the government. God sets up the government. God empowers the government. And so we, kingdom people, we have an obligation to be part of that and participate in it. Um, at all levels, at all levels. Kingdom of God, but we're also in the kingdom of the world and God's over both. So we have an obligation to both. Give to God what belongs to God and Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Um, and so we wear two hats. And sometimes, sometimes these two things can conflict, and we just got to be okay with that because there's different rules that apply to both in this theology. Um, it's, the analogy sometimes uses it's like a Christian football team. Uh, when they're on the football field, they don't turn the other cheek. They knock the other team on their butt. At least they try to. Because that's what the rules say you're supposed to do. That's the game. So also when you're in the game of the world, you got to play by the, the world's standards. Um, and, and we have an obligation to do that. And that's not related to our kingdom of God stuff. Uh, you have to put on a different hat. And so, for example, one of the best books that defend the two kingdoms theology is Chuck Colson's book, God and Government. And um, Chuck Colson, what I like about the book is he's very explicit and very frank and honest about what, the, what he's saying. And, and he encourages Christians to, uh, he thinks it's godly to be involved in all forms of government, however high up you, know, you feel called to go and can go, uh, because we want to be infiltrating that whole realm there. And he says, of course, the higher up you go, the more you must be willing to lie because national secrets have to be guarded. And you must be willing to deceive. This is part of the game. Uh, you have to misdirect information uh, to keep those who are hostile to your country confused. And you must be willing to steal uh, because stealing secrets uh, from other governments is part of what you do. It's how you collect intelligence. And you must be willing to order the killing. Uh, that's just part of what you do when you're wearing the hat of a, of a kingdom of the world person. That's part of the game. That's the football of the world. But it's got nothing to do with your kingdom of God status. You see, so two kingdoms. We have divided loyalties. We, two, we wear two hats. And we just got to follow both. And so uh, this has been the dominant way of looking at the world since the 5th century. It's the way most Christians tend to, to look at the world. It's why, it's why it doesn't even occur to most American Christians to even ask the question, 
Forget it. I'm not talking about what answer to give here, but even ask the question, should I vote? Of course. It's ungodly not to vote, isn't it? It's unpatriotic. We have a God-given duty to be patriotic. Many Christians assume that. We have a God-given duty to participate in all levels of government. Uh, they don't even question that. Don't, it doesn't even occur to them to question uh, whether or not you should have an occupation that might involve you killing somebody or going in the military. Of course you do that. You defend your country. That's godly, right? God's over the government, so we have to submit to it. And it, 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 it created this assumption. It's obvious to us that we just wear these two hats. It is why... Partly, at least, why American Christians have a fairly easy time putting on a kingdom hat and taking it off at other times. Put it on on Sunday and take it off on Monday. When you're at the work, what, what does work have to do with, you know, your religious stuff? We, we, we are very compartmentalized, and part of it is because of this two kingdoms theology, and I think it's twisted. And what I'm going to show in a little bit here is that the two passages, the two main passages that are used to support it, actually argue for the exact opposite. Okay, so that's where we're going. But first I want to raise three questions about this two kingdoms theology, that we have divided loyalties, we wear two hats. Three questions that I think indicate something is off. So first, we have to always start with Jesus, right? Always start with Jesus. And so ask the question, how does this two kingdoms theology fit with the description of Jesus in the New Testament? Jesus doesn't seem to have had divided loyalties. In fact, he didn't seem to get along very well with the Roman government. He didn't really conform very well to the Jewish government. In fact, he got crucified precisely because he didn't conform to either Rome or, 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 or the Jewish government. He was crucified as a subversive, a revolutionary, a nonconformist. And then he goes and says, follow my example. How does that, how does that reconcile with this, uh, we live in two kingdoms kind of idea? Not only that, but do you know the titles that were given Jesus? If you look at them in their original context, in, in, the, in the context of the first century Roman Empire, they were, most of them were subversive. They made a statement not only about Jesus, but also about Rome. And, and they, they had the effect of delegitimizing the authority of Rome. So, for example, the, the, the unifying slogan of the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. You're expected to say that whenever you greet somebody, Caesar is Lord. If a Roman official greeted you, they would say Caesar is Lord, and you were supposed to say Caesar is Lord indeed. That was how you show that you're just a good citizen. When you went by a statue, you had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord, uh, a, sta- a statue of the emperor, you had, because you had to just like, like bow your head a little bit in reverence, you're acknowledging he is Lord. In some areas, you had to do a little more than that, offer a little incense or whatever. They didn't care whether you believed it or not, you just had to say it, because this is what keeps the empire woven together. We have to have some kind of culture in common. But see, the early Christians, they confess Jesus is Lord, and there's only one Lord, not two. And so when they say Jesus is Lord, they're saying Caesar is not. It's a subversive claim. And uh, so when they were greeted by somebody who said Caesar is Lord, they would not respond by saying Caesar is Lord. They would say, no, Jesus is. And this is why they'd be thrown into prison and, and be persecuted. In the same way, uh, Caesar was called the Son of God, referred to as the Son of God, and he was worshipped as the Son of God. He was God's representative here on earth. But the Christians said, no, only Jesus is the Son of God. And only Jesus is to be worshipped. And it's not like a lot of sons of God. Not when it comes to being his representatives in this divine sense, there's only one. So First John, for example, says that no one's ever seen the Father at any time. But the, the one and only Son, uh, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And that phrase, one and only, in Greek it's monogenes. It's sometimes translated only begotten. But its, it's, it's connotation is that he is utterly unique. He's one of a kind, sui generis. There's, there's not two of him. There's only one. He's the son. And so if Jesus is the son of God, then Caesar isn't. And if Jesus is to be worshipped, then Caesar isn't. It's a subversive claim. 
And they said, you know, in the common Roman Empire, they said that, that Caesar, uh, Augustus, is the, the, the one who brings peace and he's the savior of the world. Those were titles that were given to him. And he's the one, his birth was celebrated as the good news, euangelion in Greek. Christians didn't invent that term. It was already out there. The good news uh, that the savior has been born, Caesar. And the Roman Empire was called the kingdom of Caesar. But the Christians subverted all those claims, delegitimized all those claims, uh, acknowledge that those claims have no authority on them because they attribute all that to Jesus. Jesus was the bringer of peace and Jesus was the Savior of the world. And there aren't two Saviors. There's only one Lord and one Savior. And Jesus' birth was celebrated as the good news, euangelion. And the movement, uh, Jesus' birth was called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his son. It's not the kingdom of Caesar, not the kingdom of Rome. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All of these claims are absolutely subversive claims. And what it means, folks, is that we don't serve two lords. We only serve one. Uh, serving the one rules out all the others. You can only have one ultimate authority, and there's not to be any competition there. So we don't wear two hats, we wear one. We don't have two different identities, we have one. Uh, we, we don't live in two different kingdoms, we live in one. There's a legal sense, of course, in which we live in, in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of America. But in terms of our loyalty, it's to be singular, singularly devoted to Jesus Christ and to the kingdom which he inaugurated with his death and resurrection. So something is off, I submit to you with this two kingdoms theology, as prevalent as it is. Here's the second question. And now, things start to get interesting. How does this interpretation score with the teachings and example of Jesus? Now, I'm just going to give two examples here that I, I believe, and you can disagree. And I think I would like, I would, if you have a way of getting around this, I want to hear about it, because um, I can't see it. And I've read a lot of books on this and still can't see it. But maybe you have the answer. So feel free to come up afterwards. But here's the thing. I'm going to give two, two, two teachings that I think absolutely rule out any idea that the t- these teachings can be qualified by anyone or anything, that we li- qualified by another kingdom that we live in. And they take us right to the very central heart of the gospel. This is the area that I think is the most central area of the gospel that is the most systematically ignored or twisted. Jesus said, love your enemies. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. That's what the world does. That's that's standard. Everyone does that. But I'm going to tell you, I want you to be different. I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke it adds, and do good to those who despitefully use you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're to love the way the Father loves, and the way the Father loves is like the sun shines and the rain falls. Uh, You love indiscriminately. The the, the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to fall on. It just does what it does. And the sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to shine on. It just does what it does. And God doesn't pick and choose who he's going to love. He just does what he does. God is love. And so he, he loves like the sun shines and the rain falls, the righteous, the unrighteous, the good, and the wicked. That's how we're to love. By definition, it rules out any possibility of there being any exceptions to this. You see, it, it, it cuts off at the knees any possibility of saying, well, of course, not those kind of enemies or not these kind of enemies. No, it's not even about who's out there, the nature of your enemy or whatever. It's about who you are. You are to be this way because the Father's this way, and if you're his child, his DNA is flowing into you, so you love like that. It's a unilateral love outward that's unconditional, and it's never to be retracted. If that passage means anything, does it not mean that we're supposed to put on the enemy-loving, nonviolent hat of the kingdom and never, ever, ever take it off? Never, ever, ever take it off. 
And remember that when, when Jesus says enemies in the first century Palestinian context, the first thing all of his Jewish audience is thinking is Romans. The Romans are the terrorists who have already conquered them, who have been oppressively ruling over them. The Romans ruled by terror. If anyone starts messing with them, causing problems, they would just go into a town, round up some people, crucify them on the hill, and say, do you really want to mess with us? This is how they kept the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. It wasn't peace. It was, it was, it was terror. They, they terrorized people in submission. They, it was like if Al-Qaeda had already conquered America, and they're ruling us. And every Jewish person hated Rome for that. Um, and many were looking for the Messiah to raise up a revolution against them and get Rome off their back so they could be a sovereign nation one, uh, once again. So some are thinking Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're wondering, what will he say about this? And he disappoints almost everybody by saying, well, everybody has loved their friends and hated their enemies. That's what humans do. But I'm telling you, in my kingdom, there's no off button to the love button. It's always on. If you're signing up for this thing, you don't get to hate your enemies. You've got to love your enemies. You have to do good to your enemies. You have to serve your enemies. I'm sure some of the audience were saying, no freaking way. You're kidding. This is absurd. And he knows that it's radical. He knows that this is going to stand out. It's so different. But he's saying the very nastiest kind of enemies you can imagine, yet even them. Because the rain falls on them and the sun shines on them, so you're going to love them. If you're looking for a club to justify hating your enemies, this is not the club. <laughs> uh, wrong club. Uh, go down the road a little bit, you'll find some. But uh, no, it, here, here it's, it, it's, it's unconditional and unqualified, and I cannot see how you, anyone could find an exception in it. Now, since the 5th century, there's been tons of people doing mental gymnastics, exegetical gymnastics, to try to find some way around this. Well, he doesn't mean this kind of enemy. He doesn't mean that kind of enemy. And so we end up just loving our friends and hating our enemies like everybody else, but feeling like Jesus approves of that. The whole point of the passage is to cut off at the knees any possibility of there being exceptions. Um, and so I submit to you this completely undermines, this completely undermines the, th- the teaching of, of the two kingdoms. Oh, yeah, there's an off- When you're playing by the rules of the world, of course you don't love those enemies. It doesn't make any sense. Come on. Be real. Be realistic. We've got to be practical here. Um, if the teaching means anything, it just goes right against that. And then here's, what, here's what's really crazy, folks. And don't kill it. I didn't make this up. Jesus said it, so don't shoot the messenger. But he says, do this, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is for Jesus, the telltale mark of a kingdom person. Is that you love in a way that no one else loves. You love in a way that other people think is stupid and impractical. You live in a way that looks foolish to the world. You love your enemies, even the nastiest kind of enemies. Um, you, you, you love the absolutely, absolutely unlovable. It, do this that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who loves like the sun shines and the rain falls. Which implies if you're not willing to do that, you can't be considered one of the children of your Father in heaven. Isn't that what the passage just said? And yet, this is just, from the 5th century on, so impractical, so inconvenient, so uncommonsensical, it just gets swept aside. Obviously, whatever Jesus means, it doesn't mean that I, I can't kill my enemy. Come on, he's threatening my country. i got to kill him. I'll do it in Jesus' name, though. Here's the other teaching. It's just as in your face. You know, this is in-your-face stuff. But Jesus said this. He goes, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, don't even resist the evildoer. If he strikes you on your right cheek, you turn the other also. Now, the word resist or anthestamy doesn't mean do nothing. It just means you don't do what they're doing. You don't respond in kind. You don't respond to a push with a push, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You, you, you opt out of the tit for tat thing. You can get in the way and get yourself killed and do a lot of things to prevent evil, but you're not allowed to respond in kind. Uh, force to force, bullet to bullet, bomb to bomb. We're to opt out of that game. 
now, here's the thing that's really interesting about this is that this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that is commanded three times in the Old Testament. It's not even just a permission. Like, here's how much you can get away with. In Exodus, it's actually a command. Show no mercy, it says. Extract the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You're supposed to do that. That's justice, right? That makes sense. In fact, this is what's called the lex talionis. It's the, uh, the law of just retaliation. And it is the principle, it's the, it's the ethical principle that undergirds all Old Testament violence when it's about crimes committed against others. And it's the principle of justice that undermines our social system. You know, they ought to be puni- they ought to get their due punishment. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so it undergirds the whole, all the violence of the Old Testament in terms of the law and punishing people for offenses. Jesus says, and this is amazing, folks, but he says, you've heard that, but I'm telling you, that now is canceled. Among my followers, we're not going to do that. He shows he's got more authority than the Old Testament because he trumps it here. He, he cancels that. He goes, no, you, you're not going to do eye for eye, tooth for tooth because you're going to be putting on display Abba's character and, and Abba doesn't act that way. He loves like the sun shines and the rain falls. Uh, and that rules out eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Even when it's just to do eye for an eye, tooth for tooth and therefore just to qualify your love, you're not allowed to do that. Because love, for you, has got to trump everything. Loving even your worst enemies. Now here's the thing. From the 5th century on, when the church came into political power, we have a long history, it continues up to this day, all the time, you find it in books everywhere, where when people want to justify, feel godly for acting violently against the people that you think would be normal to act violently against, uh, your national and personal enemies, uh, when they want to justify that, uh, and, and, and not feel like they're out of God's will, well, they can't do it by looking to Jesus. No, he says what we just said he said. And you can't do it by looking to Paul. We'll see a little bit later on. He says the same thing. Or even Peter. You know, you can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. Never once is there any hint of any qualification about enemies that you're allowed to not love and do good to. Now, it's, it's, it's a carte blanche thing. So what you do is you just jump over Jesus and grab onto the violence of the Old Testament and say, Ah, oh, look it. They slaughtered back then so we can feel godly slaughtering now. But folks, that is the very thing that Jesus just ruled out. He says, yeah, sure, that went on back then, but for my followers, no, it's, it's to be something entirely different. He completely exposes the illegitimacy of grabbing onto something in the Old Testament to justify what a supposed follower of Jesus is supposed to be doing. Our, our marching orders are to follow him, and they're very different from what they had in the Old Testament. Um, and it involves never retelling and turning the other cheek. And here's, here's the thing, think about this. If the authority of the Old Testament, the inspired Word of God in the Old Testament, if that is not allowed to qualify or condition or provide exceptions to Jesus' teaching about non-retaliation and loving enemies, do you really think that any government, any CEO, any commanding officer should have the authority to qualify or condition or provide exceptions for Jesus' teaching on non-retaliation and loving enemies? If the Old Testament can't do it, I submit to you that nothing should be allowed to do it. So this two kingdoms theology that, yeah, we're over here, but we can also wear a different hat and be over here and do things that we would never think about doing while we're over here, I submit to you it flies directly in the face of these teachings and is undermined by them. Folks, the passion of my heart is this. See, the job of the kingdom person is to integrate everything in our life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even bringing every thought captive to Jesus. We're not, we're, we're not to have a, a different compartment for our thoughts. Uh, no, the problem, the sin is the compartments. We, we have a secular and religious you know, compartmentalization, and the, the goal is to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus, bring our whole self under the lordship of Jesus, bring the kingdom into every area of our life. 
And, and, and the, the ultimate reality is that while we may be legally are, are, are in two citizens, what's real is that if you've said yes to Jesus Christ and surrendered to him, you're in the kingdom of God, and you're not supposed to ever get out of there. You don't go on vacation from the kingdom. No, you're supposed to be abiding in Christ. You make him your permanent residence. And so the reality is we've only got one Lord, and we've got one Savior, and we only have one loyalty and one way of life that we're called to follow. And, and it, it's the way of our, the one who saved us and cleansed us and redeemed us and put a spirit in us and has destined us for heaven. Praise God. Has seated us in heavenly places, freed us from the devil. Amen. It's one whose kingdom never began and will never end, and, uh, and we're to reign with him. But we don't take vacations to him and from him. No, the kingdom isn't something we do. Like we can stop doing it. It's supposed to be who we are. It's not, not a verb that we engage in or not. It's something we are. And so we never find an off button for the love, and we never change our hats. It's to be a permanent kind of a thing. And yeah, it's radical. It's, oh, it's radical. It doesn't make any sense to the world. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's different. It offers the world something it doesn't already have. Here's the, the third question about this two kingdoms theology. If God is establishing, in a sense of setting up or empowering all the governments, then why are some of them, even many of them, demonic? And why do they fight each other? I mean, if, if you're going to say that all the governments, this is what Paul is saying, all the governments have been set up by God, empowered by God, then you have to say, well, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, was set up by God. And then you'd have to say, well, that what they did must have been set up by God. It must have been somehow God's will. Massacring six million Jews and four million others. And then Paul says that the reason they're set up by God is to punish wrongdoers. Look at where this is going. Oh, so they must have been, they got what was coming to them. And there's people who tragically draw that conclusion. Stalin, killing 30 million of his own people. Think of the twisted people that we've seen throughout history, on this reading of Romans 13, we'd have to say that all of them have been established by God. They just are the way they are because God wants them that way. And then they fight one another. How is that? Can a kingdom be divided against itself? We have to get this picture. If God is setting up, establishing, and empowering all the governments, then in World War II, for example, he must have been he set up the Third Reich to be just the way it is. And then he set up America to be the way it is, and France and Britain to be the way they are. And then he tells the citizens on all, on all sides, hey, make sure you obey those who lead you when they say, go to war and kill, because uh, you're just doing my will when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you do that. To rebel against them is to rebel against God. I don't want anyone rebelling against Hitler. No one rebelling against Mussolini or Stalin. No, you obey them. Um, and, and so uh, when they say go to war, they go to war. And I've set them up so they would go to war, okay? because they are the way they are, because I set them up there. So now, uh, one, two, three, everybody have at it, and boom, here comes our, our World War II. And God is a master whoremonger puppeteer who pulls all the strings. He's, they're just doing what he told them to do. Nice little massacre. Is that really what God does? How is that view of God consistent with the God who's revealed in Christ? It's not. Uh, I submit that something's seriously off with this interpretation of Romans 13. Um, hey, here's what usually happens. Read the books that defend this perspective, and what you almost always get is this. They'll say, they'll apply Romans 13 to their American government, but not to the other ones. So the quote Romans 13, you have a duty to participate in the government and defend the country and all that stuff because God is over it and God says submit to the government and this is what the government wants you. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. You're supposed to do that. Uh, but they never apply that to North Korea. Yeah, those people, they have an obligation to submit to their government and they're rebelling against God if they rebel against their government or to the Third Reich or to all the other governments. It's just ours happens to be the one godly one and we're here and so it applies to us. Sorry, folks. Whatever the word established means, if it means set up and empowered, 
and that God's directly over it, and we're supposed to submit. If that's what it means, then it applies to all of the governments, because that's what Paul explicitly says three times. It applies to all. All of them have been established by God. You can't selectively apply it to your own and not apply it to others. What it means to the one is what it means to the others. Okay. So there's something seriously wrong with this two kingdoms theology. So let's, let's go back to the verses. First, uh, Matthew 22, and then Romans 13. In Matthew 22, folks, here's the thing. Yeah, the Pharisees went out and they, they laid plans to trap him in his words. They want to trap Jesus. So they sent disciples and Herodians. They said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and, and, and that, uh, you, 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 that uh, you teach the way of God in accordance with truth and you're not swayed by others and you pay no attention to, to uh, who they are. And so, so they're, 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 they're fluffing Jesus up. They're like, oh, you're so wise, you're so wonderful, you, know, you, you don't care about what others think. So tell us your opinion. They're trying to bait him into answering this. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And so then Jesus says, see, here's the thing. They're serving him up this hot political question. This is one of the most debated issues in first century Judaism. Um, some people said, oh, pay the tax because, you know, otherwise you're going to invite trouble on yourself. Just just pay it and, and we'll have to just trust God to take care of the situation. But the, the more radical folks, they said, no, don't pay taxes. Because when you pay taxes, you're actually paying Rome to oppress us. We're paying them to be killing us in all this. No, withhold your taxes. And if they come uh, and, and uh, declare war on us, then let there be war. And then there's a, a, a spectrum of, of opinions in between. Very divisive issue. And what, what they're hoping for is that if Jesus will weigh in on one side or the other, say, well, here's God's opinion on the left, or here's God's opinion on the right, he'll immediately divide the crowd in half. And that's what they want. They want to they trip him up so that he, his popularity ratings will go down. And now, the people who are offended by what he just said will never listen to another thing he has to say. And whenever you weigh in on political issues, hot political issues, that's what happens. Oh, God's opinion, which happens to be mine, uh, is this one. No, God's opinion, which happens to also be mine, God always agrees with me, is that one. And now, forget your opportunity to share the gospel with the people who have a different opinion about the tax issue, because they just wrote you off as a loser. And you just butt into all the venom of the political sphere, and how I wish the church in America would learn that lesson. Jesus doesn't bite the bait. He finds a, a, a unique kingdom way of answering this question. He didn't come here to tweak our little systems of government and to give us the right rules about how to tax and how, how to have laws about inheritance and all the rest. No, he came to set up an entirely different kingdom. So he says, uh, bring me uh, the, the, the coin that you pay taxes with. Holds it up, and the coin, of course, he, he says, whose image is on here? And they say, well, that's Caesar. Every coin had, every denarius had the, the image of Caesar on it. But what you need to know is that for first century Jews, to have a, a, a graven image of yourself was considered idolatry, a violation of the fourth command. So he says, well, who's graven image is this? And they say, well, of course it's Caesar. And then Jesus says, well, then give it back to him. It's got his image on it. Give it back to him. The principle here is whoever's image you bear owns you. Or whatever image something bears owns it. And so if it's got his image on it, it must belong to him. Give it back to him. Now, if you took it literally, Jesus would be saying, give all your money back to Caesar because it all had his image on it. Um, but they understood that wasn't what he's saying. I mean, that, that would mean they'd have no money. And it, since Rome printed all the money and it all had his image on it, that would mean that you know, they would starve to death. But what he was saying here is this. Are we Jews really going to argue over how much of this idolatrous metal we're going to keep? Is that really going to be the thing that, that we're going to be fighting over? How much to keep or how much to give back? If it's got his image on it, which is idolatrous, we all agree on that, well, then give all of it back to him so, so, as far as I'm concerned. But here's what we ought to be concerned with. Are we giving to God what bears his image? We are in the image of God, which means 
He owns us. We bear his image, and our obligation is therefore to give our whole selves back to him. And what good does it do to be fighting over taxation if we're not surrendering our whole selves over to him? And maybe if we did surrender our whole selves over to him, the taxation issue would take care of itself because now we'd be honoring the terms of the covenant wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. Instead of saying we have divided loyalties, we have to wear two different hats, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, what do I care about that Caesar stuff? Get right with God. Give your whole self back to God. He's saying there's only one that really we ought to be concerned with and our full loyalty, our full attention, our full devotion should be towards him. And don't let this other stuff divide you. No, don't work itself out. Keep your eyes on this. He's, he's emphasizing the singularity of our devotion as to be to God because we bear his image. And then Romans 13, I'll just say two words about this. I think we'll clear this up. Two words. Number one, the word established in the Greek is tasso. And it can mean to, to establish or to file or to order, order something. It's sometimes translated orchestrate. And there's many scholars who argue that Paul, thankfully, isn't saying here that the way governments are is the way God established them. Because then you'd have to conclude that God, God set up Nazi Germany. What he's rather saying is the way God finds government, or he files government, he orders governments, as he finds them, whether he likes them or not, he'll work with them to file them, to use them according to the kind of government they are. Uh, John Howard Yoder, in his book, The Politics of Jesus, which is a fantastic book, by the way, he, he uses this analogy. He says, a librarian files books. That's what a librarian does. This kind of book goes over here. This kind of book goes over here, etc., etc. And it doesn't matter whether the librarian likes the book or hates the book. The book maybe re- revolts the librarian. But it's just the kind of book that should be filed here. And this is the kind of book that should be filed there. So also God comes to the governments of the world, the sword-wielding governments. It's not that he likes that at all. No, he, he, he didn't. Sword-wielding was never part of his original will. Governments were never part of his original will. Read 1 Samuel 8. To trust in any human king is to reject God. We're to have God as our king. So this is part of the fallen world, the sword-wielding stuff. But God is not a prissy God who says, ooh, I'm not going to deal with it because it's beneath my standards. No, God, he always deals with things as they are. And so here's, here's, here's the thing. In a fallen world where a lot of people don't have any internal motivation for doing right, the only reason they don't, they refrain from doing evil is because they're afraid of being caught and thrown into prison. In that kind of world, God says, oh, I can put these sword-wielding governments to some good use. I'll use them to punish wrongdoers as much as possible. And so depending on the kind of government as he takes them as he finds them and he files them. This kind of government should be filed here. This kind of government should be filed here. And he's always moving to maximize good and minimize evil, to bring about as much justice as possible. And insofar as they do that, we should submit to them. They're their agents of God's wrath insofar as they do that. Um, but he's not saying that the way governments are and all of their terrible stuff is the way God wants them to be. No, I think God despises a lot of this, but he still uses it. Just like he does throughout the Old Testament. You find God, he tells Israel, if you walk with me, I'll protect you. This is the covenant. But if you keep on pushing me away, well, then I'll grant you your wish, and then the other nations are going to have their way with you. It came a time where after warning, after warning, after warning, God with a grieving heart says, okay, I'll grant you your wish. Uh, I will hide my face. I withdraw. When God withdraws, now there's Assyria over here, this barbaric, vicious, terrible nation, licking its chop like a rabid pit bull, just wanting to devour Israel, and they come in and they do their stuff. And, that, and God says that they were the rod of my chastisement, the rod of my discipline. Um, they were being filed. God didn't make them that way. In fact, God turns around and punishes them for being the kind of nation that would ever do such a thing. So he doesn't like the fact that they're this way, but if they're this way, well, God always brings good out of evil. He always finds uh, you know, a, a way to wisely influence things. And, and where he is and where he withdraws, it, it, it influences the, the flow of the nations. That's what God is doing in Romans 13, but it's not saying that the way governments are, 
are the, the way that God wants them to be. The second thing we got to know is, is, is this. It's so important to always read it in context. context we've said this a bunch of times in this series. Context, context, context. Uh, and you got to remember that in the original Bible, there weren't chapter divisions. Uh, that was imposed later on. And in some ways, they're unfortunate because sometimes you forget that uh, one chapter might be carrying on the thought of a, of, of a different chapter, and that is the case in Romans 13. Romans 13 is carrying on a conversation that began in Romans 12. Now, here's what we find in Romans 12, interestingly enough. See, if we get this, we'll see that the, Romans 13 is teaching the exact opposite of what this two-kingdom theology says. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We've heard that before, haven't we? Notice there's no qualifications, no if and exceptions, no fine print. Uh, no, it's just anyone who persecutes you, you got to bless. Do not repay anyone. That's kind of an all-inclusive word. Anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, so we leave all judgment to God. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, every enemy, all the enemies, no exceptions, yep, uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That's just a, uh, an idiomatic expression for bringing conviction on somebody. Maybe re- they'll repent. Maybe they'll turn. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul, as clearly as Jesus says, you love your enemies, do good to your enemies, bless your enemies, no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, and then he says, leave all vengeance to God. And then the next verse, 13.1, forget that there's a chapter difference. The next verse, the same thought. Paul says, Here's one of the ways that God exacts vengeance. You leave all vengeance to God. Here's one of the ways that God exacts vengeance. He uses the sword-wielding governments to do that. In fact, he uses the exact same word to, tell, to forbid one thing to us that he says God uses government to do. Uh, he says in 1219, uh, he says, Christians do not take revenge. Ectikeo, ectikeo. Why? Because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Ectikaios, same word, a little different ending because the word's put in the sentence. Ectikaio. And then, how does God exact ectikaio? Well, the government that always carries swords, they're going to be agents of God's ectikaio. So they get to do something that Christians are forbidden to do. They'll do ectikaio. Most people on the planet are totally okay carrying a sword. We're not allowed to do that. So far from saying, Christians, you need to be involved in all this stuff because God's over it, Paul's saying the exact opposite. No, insofar as being involved in the governments of this world cause you to compromise your walk as a kingdom person, you're not allowed to do that. You've sworn off a little ectikeo. God had, that belongs to God, and God will use governments as much as possible to bring about justice, vengeance, punish the wrongdoer. So folks, it's not saying anything that we're supposed to... You see, I hope you see this. We, we, we don't have two hats. We don't have two loyalties. We have one. We have one. Now, I know that if you're sitting here and hearing this for the first time, your brain is maybe melting right now because you're saying, this is nuts, this is crazy, this is insanity. This guy's absolutely out of his brain. Uh, because if all the Christians in the world did this, well, then the Al-Qaeda would take over and we'd be under Sharia law. Is that what you want, Greg Boyd? I get asked that about every six months. Uh, this is insanity, this is irresponsibility, this is unpatriotic, this is treason, this is dangerous. Uh, teaching this kind of thing. I, I didn't invent this gospel. I, I'm just trying to say the word here, folks. But here's the thing, notice this. That question, oh, no, 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 they're going to take over America if this word gets out. First of all, this message has never been that popular and never will be until the Lord comes back, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like the most people are going to buy into this, you know? Um, but look at that, that question is a how do I run the world question. 
That's the Christendom question. The question that's been asked since the fifth century. Well, we have to operate in ways to run the world rightly. And the minute we start thinking that, we stop being faithful. We're not to be world runners. We're not emperors. We're, we're not called to run the world or to fix the world. Uh, we're not wiser than other people at how governments should operate or things of that sort. In fact, if you're a faithful Christian, you're probably stupider because you've lost all your malice and all the stuff that the world runs on. So you wouldn't make wise decisions out there. I don't want you in office. No, you'd be too naive. Um, and that's good. But uh, um, uh, uh, it, it, our job isn't to run the world. Our job is to be faithful. And, and at some point, you got to ask the question, do you trust God or not? You know, he says he files the governments. I'm going to just trust that he'll be filing the governments. I, I'm just going to trust that the world's not going to implode until he sees it's ready to implode, right? So I, I can leave to God all of that kind of thing. That's part of what it means to leave all vengeance to God, is I'm going to leave all the, 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 the wrath and violent stuff over to him. He'll take care of it. And I will just commit to living a Jesus way because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what he calls me to do. And we're called not to be practical. We're called to be faithful. Two different things. In fact, Paul tells us that this is the most impractical thing on the planet. The way of the cross, living the way of the cross, trusting in the power of the cross. He says it is foolishness and weakness to the world. It looks stupid to the world. It looks weak to the world. But we know that it's the power of God. It will win in the end. Uh, so, folks, it's supposed to look stupid. It's supposed to sound impractical. It's supposed to sound insane. Uh, they anticipated this. Um, and, and, and so if you're thinking this is insane, that means, oh, good, you're hearing me. Uh, th- 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 that's good. And if you came to join the club that makes common sense and wants to Christianize all, all that the world's already doing, well, this is the wrong club because this, we're supposed to stand out as different, radically different, as different as Jesus was. And it may get you crucified. The, 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 the minority of Christians who have actually taken this seriously throughout history, and it's always been a minority, but they've always been accused of being unpatriotic and being cowardly and being weak and being foolish and undermining the empire. If everyone does what you do, well, then we're just going to all self-implode. And many times they've been persecuted and put to death. And so if you're being called that and, and uh, uh, feeling out of place and people think you're ridiculous, then wonderful. That's good news because that means you're doing something right. You're doing something right. It's supposed to look like that. That's the beauty of the kingdom. We only can be a we only can be an advertisement of an alternative way of living if we are in fact alternative. And Jesus tells us all the way that we're to be alternative. The world doesn't need more of what it's already got. Love your friends and hate your enemies. It needs something radically, radically different. People who get so sick and tired of the merry-go-round of endless cyclical, mindless violence, they opt out of it, saying, "I'm done. I'm going to follow the Jesus way." And if I die, I die. It's not the worst thing in the world, folks. It's going to happen to all of us anyways. And so, uh, you know, don't worry about that. Take no thought for tomorrow. The final thing I'll say, and I close with this, is that I know there's a, a ton of ambiguity around how this gets applied in our life. Uh, I had a conversation two weeks ago with a young man here, a very sincere young man, who wants to be an ambassador for the United States. And, and, and we asked him all these questions. Well, is it okay if I do this? What about this? Or what about this? What about this? Um, you know, can you, can you work in the factory that makes the bombs that bombs the enemy? Well, maybe not, but can you be a janitor in the factory that makes the bombs that bomb the enemy? Uh, you know, can you paint the building of the bo- building that makes the bombs that bomb the enemy? I'm not going to answer those questions. Look, here's the thing. We all have to walk this out, and it's not like one size fits all, and there's really no perfectly clean place to stand. It's like there's no clean dollar bill in your wallet. It's been tainted somehow. Uh, we are in the world, but not of the world. And so we have to commit to living out the radical kingdom. But how it's going to be applied to our life is going to be different. And what God requires of one, he doesn't necessarily require of another. We're all called to different things. I mean, 11 years ago, God told me that I'm supposed to put off all violence in my life towards any living thing, if at all possible. Never to kill for convenience. So this last week, I saved three moths. How, how weird is that? <laughs> but that's, that's what God calls me to do. It's not what God calls others to do. 
Um, uh, and it doesn't make me more righteous for all I know. It's given to me because I'm more carnal. Maybe God knows that I'm just an extremist by nature and I can't do anything in the middle of ground, so he gives me the most extreme version of nonviolence because that's the only way I can ever purge myself of, uh, of the violence that's necessary. I don't know. I just know that I'm supposed to do what God calls me to do. So we each have to, in community with others, seek out what God's will is for us and to apply it and not judge those who differ from us. Because if we're not invited into their life, we're only allowed one opinion of them, and that's that they're worth Jesus dying for. But we are all called to put on the kingdom hat, the nonviolent, enemy-loving kingdom hat, and never, ever, ever, ever take it off because we have one king, not two. We cannot serve two masters. I'd like to call the prayer teams up here, and uh, if you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks, whether it's about this topic or something entirely different. Uh, st- stick around and have some food. Talk to Pastor Emmanuel about his uh, India project, uh, and then go to the baptism at 2 o'clock, where Shauna does declare prophetically that the sun will be shining, so we can trust her on that one. Would you stand as I just send us out with this little benediction? Father, the power of your spirit radicalizes. Help us not to settle for a vanilla, watered-down, mediocre, middle-of-the-road, mashed potato kind of gospel, but rather that uh, one that embraces the full beauty of your radical, countercultural, anti-empire uh, kingdom uh, and help empower us to have the boldness to live it out consistently, thoroughly, and to never, ever, ever take that hat off. For we belong to you alone. In Jesus' name and all of God's children said... Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live the radical kingdom.